In my 30th year, in the fourth month of the fifth day, when I was among the exiles by the Kiba River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, by the river Kibar in the land of the Babylonians. And there the hand of the Lord was on him. I looked and I saw a violent storm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. In the center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of the one touched the wings of the other. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being, and on the right side was the face of a lion, as the king of the uh, fighting animals. On the left, the face of an ox, that's the king of the sort of herbivore animals. And each also had the face of an eagle, the king, king of the birds. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading out upwards, each wing touching that of the creature on either side. And each had two wings covering its body. Each one would go straight ahead, and whenever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire, or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright. And lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz. And all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not need to change direction as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go. And the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. And when the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose from the ground along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out towards the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings like a roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings, Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, and high above the throne was the figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And from there down, he looked like fire, and a brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds of a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, as we look at the, uh, the scriptures now, look at the book of Ezekiel, we pray that you will open our hearts and illumine our understanding. Through Jesus' name, amen. Are we um, on? So uh, we're carrying on in our series in Ezekiel. 
and if you're maybe listening in or here today, uh, we've done two weeks so far looking at the background to Ezekiel. And you may remember from last week, if you were here, that there were three parts of Ezekiel. And today we're going to look at the, uh, the first two of those parts. Uh, they're it's, um, quite a hard bit, so uh, here we go. Uh, firstly, uh, sort of an introductory section. Um, this is about Ezekiel, chapters 1 through 3. Ezekiel was born into the priestly family of Zadok in 622 BC and would have reached the age of his bar mitzvah, sort of 13, when King Josiah was killed. He was taken away from his home country when he was aged about 25 as part of that deportation that included Daniel, who would have been about 14 at the time, and the cream of Jewish society. Once they'd been deported, they were allowed to live in their own settlements with relative freedom. Ezekiel settled in, in a place called Tel Aviv, uh, which is now the capital of Israel, and by one of the canals that joined the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. The name Ezekiel means God strengthens, but in the prophecy he's more commonly referred to as son of man, which is a title we know well from the Gospels because Jesus uses it of himself a lot. No other prophet has ever been called by this title. It was the age of 30 when he should have started his priesthood that he was called to be a prophet. He was far away from his home country and he couldn't be a priest in Babylon for there was no temple there. The prophetic call came through an amazing vision of the Lord. So from the age of 30 to 33, this prophet, who was called Son of Man, performed miracles and preached. Clearly, Ezekiel was a forerunner of Christ, who was, of course, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus began his ministry when he was 30, for that was the age at which a Jewish man could begin to serve as a priest. But although Ezekiel could not officiate in a temple, he could still take part in worship. In the absence of the temple, the Jewish synagogue, which just means meeting place or coming together, became the place for praise, prayer, and scripture reading. Indeed, it was the model that the early Christians adopted as a church as they moved away from temple worship to more like house churches in the early days of the overlap between the Old and New Covenants. Ezekiel's call that we've just read from chapter 1 is most unusual. There's a strange vision, a vision so odd that modern scholars have tried to speculate whether he had a fit or went into a trance or took drugs. It would need a very surreal artist to do it justice. In fact, the favorite interpretation today is that he saw a UFO. <laughs> First of all, he saw creatures, which were a combination of animals, humans, and angels. They had wings of angels, parts were human, and parts were animal. These four creatures are clearly symbolic of all the living beings that God has created in the universe, whether animal, human, or angel. These are the three main orders of creation, reminding us that human beings are not the peak of creation. Above the four creatures, he sees the creator on his throne, majestic, mysterious, and covered in glory. Wherever God is, there is glory. Indeed, the phrase, the glory of the Lord, recurs throughout the book. Glory means the radiance or brightness of God. And clearly, this throne on wheels can travel in any direction. This symbolizes the omnipresence of God, who is able to be anywhere and everywhere. He is a mobile God. This is significant because until this point, Every vision of God's throne in the Bible has portrayed it as static, fixed in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem's been destroyed now. So it was a comfort for Ezekiel to learn that God's throne was mobile, for it meant he could move to Babylon. This was an important truth to communicate to the exiles, who may have believed that God lived in one place, hundreds of miles away in Jerusalem. And we were talking in the last couple of weeks about how this relates to, to our lives now, the sense of history turning over and uh, maybe sort of a sense of loss of uh, where we sense that God had his throne in our own country, but God is able to be moving and mobile and uh, can be anywhere he wants to be. 
And furthermore, the eyes on the rims of the wheel tell us that God can be everywhere and anywhere. It's a very meaningful picture. No wonder Ezekiel was overwhelmed with the vision and fell to the ground. It's interesting that he fell face down. In the Bible, the reaction to divine presence is to fall forwards. The apostle Paul at his conversion and John at Patmos fell on their faces, which is what Ezekiel does here. And then God gave Ezekiel a scroll on which to write the prophecies he was to eat, and God told him to eat the scroll. The words on the scroll were words of lamentation, mourning, and woe, curse words. And yet he found God's judgment sweet. Interesting. He found it sweet to taste of God's judgment. So chapters 4 through 24, uh, what we're going to pick up on next, and this is, uh, if you like, section 1 after the introductory first three chapters. And uh, these, these uh, 21 chapters are really all about retribution for Jerusalem. Uh, this is why it's not preached on very much in church. 21 chapters of uh, woe to Jerusalem. Prophet after prophet had foretold two disasters. Firstly, that Jerusalem would be destroyed by, by the Babylonians, and secondly, the people would be deported to Babylon. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Habakkuk had all said the same thing. When Jerusalem was taken by the Babylonians and the top people in the society were deported, the city itself remained standing. Some of the people of Judah claimed that the judgment was not as bad as Jeremiah had made out. God had apparently said he would destroy the city, but in fact it still existed, and it still had Jews living in it. They admitted they were now under a foreign power, but they still had the city. So the inference was maybe Ezekiel's exaggerated the problem of sin. If he was wrong about the extent of disaster, maybe he was wrong about other things too. So the word of God was being watered down, rather like Satan's uh, trick was in the Garden of Eden when he questions Eve's understanding of God's prohibition. But it was important that the people of Judah understood what God was doing. The exile wasn't just punishment, it was also supposed to give them a chance to reform. It's not just an arbitrary thing inflicted on them. He wants his people to get better while, while they're being punished. It's a bit like a child being sent to a naughty step. It's not just that you want to sit them down for a while. You're hoping that they'll change their ways while they're sitting on it. So someone had to persuade them that God had really meant what he said. He really was cross. Ezekiel has to point to the destruction of Jerusalem as the time when they would know that God was the Lord. Their sin was as bad as the prophets had said. And therefore, the judgment would also be as bad as the prophets had said. So his first uh, big message to communicate is that Jerusalem will fall. Jerusalem will fall. Not just that people have been taken into exile, but it will actually fall. And uh, this, is, this is, if you haven't read through these chapters of Ezekiel, this is extraordinary to read. Um, he has to communicate this message not only verbally, but also visually. He has to teach them in six different ways that Jerusalem was finished. I wonder if anyone knows any of the ways that he acts out. Any, uh, any, any takers? Okay, we'll see which one you think is the, the weirdest of these six. Number one, in at number one, he was told to take a slab of clay, draw a picture of Jerusalem on it, and lay siege to it with a model battering ram and so forth. This is, uh, can imagine my son enjoying this. It's like making a Lego model and showing it being destroyed. But he did it in total science, watched by crowds who were doubtless asking, What's the odd prophet doing now? That's number one. Drew a slab of clay and besiege it with your own mini battering rams. Number two, on the odd stakes. God told Ezekiel to lie on his side for, wait for it, 390 days. And then to lie on his right side for 40 days. He had to do that to symbolize how long the house of Israel and the house of Judah had been disobeying God, which was 390 years and 40 years respectively. 
God said that, he, that to make sure Ezekiel did it properly, he would be tied up with rope. It's quite a tough job being a prophet, isn't it? Um, over a year lying on your side. Okay, number three uh, is about what he ate. He also had to go on a meager diet to symbolize the shortage of food during the siege of Jerusalem. So he was allowed 0.2 kilograms of bread and 0.6 liters of water per day. And he had to live on that diet for a long time. If any of you have started a uh, post-Christmas weight reduction program, uh, this is probably a very efficient one. Uh, Not necessarily very good for you, though. And it gets even worse. He was to cook his bread over a fire fueled by his own dried excrement. He protests about this, and God sort of lets him off that and says he can use cow dung instead. You imagine it. He's lying on his side, cooking on his side this meager amount of bread over cow dung. And this was all meant to show that things would be desperate in Jerusalem during the time of the siege. <laughs> so we've got the slab of clay and battering ram. We've got this lying on the side. We've got the meager diet. And then we've got his head. It's number four. God told Ezekiel to shave his head and his beard with a sharp sword and then put the hair in three piles. He was to burn the first pile when the siege of Jerusalem came to an end. The second pile was to be struck with the sword all around the model city, depicting slaughter. And the third part was to be thrown in the air so that it was scattered, which was to be the fate of the people of Jerusalem. So chucked in three different ways, burnt, um, uh, struck with a sword, and thrown in the air and scattered. Uh, number five, he had to put all his clothes in a bag, dig a hole in the wall, and creep out through the wall in the night. And by doing this, he was predicting what would happen when Jerusalem fell. And indeed, King Zedekiah had to leave the city of Jerusalem in exactly the way that Ezekiel predicts. He had to crawl through a wall as well. And then the final one, number six, concerns Ezekiel's wife, uh, which is a very hard bit of the story. Um, He was not allowed to mourn the death of his life, of his wife, when she died, because she dies exactly the time that Jerusalem falls. And uh, people are going to be so stunned by that that they wouldn't believe it and wouldn't even cry. A grief beyond grief that he couldn't bring himself to mourn for. And one of the most telling visions in the book is the one depicting the glory of the Lord in the temple. The glory went up to the top of the Mount Olives and then disappeared. This is exactly what happened to Jesus when they rejected him. So Ezekiel says the city will fall to Nebuchadnezzar, who's described as having the sword of the Lord. There's a chilling description of this uh, king Nebuchadnezzar standing at the fork in the road casting lots. Will Jerusalem or Ramah of Ammon be crushed first? The destruction will be ruthless, cutting off ears and noses of inhabitants. He writes of sword and famine and wild beasts and plagues as four dreadful judgments on the people. We read at this time, the glory of the Lord will also leave the temple. So you might be asking yourself, well, why is uh, Jerusalem going to fall, Ezekiel? Why are you predicting such terrible things? What have they done that's so bad? Uh, and there are three things. Um, idolatry, immorality, and ingratitude. The idolatry is that they were worshipping this goddess called Asherah in the temple. They've painted pictures of animals over the walls of the temple ruins. The women have started worshipping a goddess called Tamas at the gate of the temple. And Ezekiel sees 25 men in the temple worshipping the sun. It was an extraordinary and terrible time. In short, the people of God were behaving even more badly than the surrounding nations. So idolatry, even in the, the location of the old temple. Immorality. Ezekiel calls Jerusalem the bloody city 
because of its ruthless exploitation of widows, orphans, and strangers, and because of the murders that have taken place in the city. This title had been given by Nahum to the evil city of Nineveh, capital of Assyria. Now we know from Jonah's story. In Jerusalem, there were lying, sexual immorality, and contempt for parents, all in disobedience of the Ten Commandments. How low Jerusalem had fallen. It was more immoral than even Nineveh had been. And finally, ingratitude. Idolatry, immorality, and ingratitude. God criticizes the people for their ingratitude and uses five parables to drive home his point. One of a wild vine, one of a girl, one of two sisters, one of a lioness and her cubs, and one of two eagles. And you can pick those up through the story. Um, These parables are a way of communicating truth to those who wanted to know, just as another son of man also used parables as a way of speaking to those who wanted to hear it. Ezekiel was the first son of man who would tell people their true situation was worse than they realized. He says that each individual is responsible for their personal state. You can't blame your predecessors. Each one must stand on judgment day. He says that each person is responsible for their present state. It's not just what someone else was that matters, but what they are. The righteous may become wicked and the wicked may become righteous. It's important to die in a state of grace. You've got to be right with God now, not just yesterday. But he does also blame three groups of people for allowing the national situation to become so bad. The religious, the prophets, and the priests, and the kings. He says that they are all partly responsible for the condition of Jerusalem. Things have got so bad that God couldn't save Jerusalem, even if three great heroes of the Old Testament turn up. Noah, Job, and Daniel. Even if they turn up, Jerusalem couldn't be saved, which comes as an enormous shock to the people. So this section of the book, that's part one, is largely gloomy. The only glimpses of hope come in uh, chapter 16, 20, and 21, where the prophet hints an everlasting covenant that God will make with his people. His kindness will shame them to the point where they loathe themselves. It's probably enough for today, isn't it? (laughs) Part one of Ezekiel, that takes you up to chapter 24. That's Ezekiel 1 through 24. And it's, uh, it's an extraordinary read through. But you see... This uh, character, Ezekiel, in many ways, the forerunner of Jesus, doing his ministry age 30 through 33, using parables, uh, performing miracles, being able to see things other people can't see, and yet being asked to speak into a context where people need to understand that what's going wrong isn't just an accident of history, and it is going to get worse before it gets better. And faithfully and rightly, Ezekiel does everything God asks him to, even lying on his side, cooking over poo, uh, cutting his hair off and, uh, and not grieving for his, uh, his dear wife when she dies as a symbolic sign uh, that God is that upset and the people will be upset about the end of Israel. So it's hard for us in our present society to understand um, the judgment of God because we've sort of been brought up with a Beatles theology. Um, All you need is love. And the the idea sort of from Disney films and general culture is that God's basically there to make us feel nicer about ourselves regardless of what we've done. And the book of Ezekiel reveals that although God isn't quick to anger, he's very slow to anger, there comes a point where he says, enough's enough. You've got to get right with me or judgment will come. And we've seen similar on Sunday morning, looking at the beginning of 1 Samuel, and the time in the tabernacle and the early temple there, 
where Eli and his family have forsaken God and eventually God says, enough's enough. So from these uh, two Old Testament stories, we must uh, pay careful attention. As the New Testament says, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We mustn't slip away from right relationship with God. We must pursue holiness and goodness and right living because God does care who we are and what we do. And he's not there just to make it all go away and make us feel better about our sins. He's there to transform society and bring holiness and goodness. And we're called to be part of that. Amen.